Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and we got another interview with you. I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, a lot of experience, a uh, lot of stuff to talk about, uh, training and competitions and what's going on uh, within the thing. So welcome uh, Rudy Gonzor to the podcast. How you doing, Rudy? Hey, guys. Doing good. Doing great. Uh, give everybody a little background. I know you got the uh, the Marine Corps from the 0311, and then you went over to the Army, did a little SF stuff. So just give some people some background, a uh, little basics on what we're going to be talking about here and a little about yourself. All right. Um, so, yeah, as you kind of said, uh, <laughs> I'm Marie Gonzor. Um, so uh, I kind of started out uh, over in the Marine Corps uh, pretty much straight out of high school. Uh, right after 9-11, I uh, ended up in the Marine Corps in 0311, um, and uh, spent my time over there, did a tour to Iraq, uh, and then kind of from there, you know, I wanted to kind of progress in my career field in a little bit different direction. I really started getting interested uh, within, like, the special operation mission sets, and uh, so I went to, actually went to MARSOC for, like, five minutes, uh, and I went through, like, the first pilot course. Uh, for the Marsoc selection in 07. And uh, it was actually being proctored by a bunch of retired, like, Army uh, SF uh, colonels and sergeant majors and stuff. And uh, ended up kind of poaching me, like, out of that community. <laughs> and then I ended up, uh, late 07, I ended up in the Army uh, and went to uh, Army selection. Uh, from there, I kind of moved into uh, my, my first ODA that I went to was a direct action team. Uh, so kind of specializing in raids and stuff uh, and actually spent uh, first amount of time there. Uh, I was mostly doing uh, like assaulter stuff, kind of doing entry work. So uh, and that was for me, that was really kind of beneficial. And uh, when I first kind of got there, you know, I, I wanted to do a little bit more of like the sniper thing. You know, I'd always kind of wanted uh, to be kind of in that position. Uh, but my team star was just like, no, man, like, you want to do sniper stuff, you know, snipers, they're a support asset to the assault force. So like you need to truly fully understand like what the assault force does so you can actually support them as a sniper. And uh, so I spent a lot of time learning, you know, that particular role of it. Uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, let me went to sniper school and then uh, did from there, it was like, I was finally home. And uh, so I spent my time uh, as a, you know, direct action uh, sniper, and then uh, went uh, eventually uh, 2013. I went to uh, to teach at the uh, used to be known as the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course. Uh, at some point, they changed the name, so it's a Special Forces Sniper Course now. Uh, so I taught that for about three years uh, out at First Group, uh, and what that was just absolutely. Uh, you amazing were, you weren't in the class oh that i don't think that was first was it you weren't in the class with us at thunder ranch were you no no, no. okay uh, a couple a couple of my compadres were there though. okay so uh, you, you the, that is the same group then yes okay group, i could uh, be trying to remember you going back in time there with me because we did a uh, first group thunder ranch thing yeah i want to say uh jeremy stringer yeah uh would have been yeah a couple of those dudes uh wicked good dudes so the, a lot of those dudes were my mentors uh, Jeremy Stringer was my team sergeant there for a while and uh, learned a ton of those from those guys. And then they helped set me up uh, in that instructor role. And uh, that was, that was mind blowing, right? Cause you think, you think, you know, everything until you're standing in front of like 
20 hard, you know, pipe hitting motherfuckers. <laughs> right. They're asking questions. <laughs> and uh, you're like, I don't know. I think I need to look this one up. <laughs> so uh, it was it was a humbling experience, uh, but it really it broadened uh, kind of my knowledge. Uh, it was great. It was also kind of where I got into competition shooting. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, Oregon uh, Sniper Challenge 2013. Uh, so that's like where we first met. Um, yeah, so you you were friends with Kaylin. You were saying just to get everybody kind yeah. of uh, yak. So Kaylin kind of brought Rudy over, but we all did. Kaylin was at that 2013. I was Jamelli. I was hanging out with Jamelli. Was there was a bunch of us there. Uh, Scott Satterley was there. So, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was some kind of a big hub. That was my first like match that I'd ever, I'd ever done. Uh, I think I took like top Mills shooter. Ended up with my first rifle out of that match. I was like, hell yeah. So, uh, you know, that was also kind of an eye opener, you know, uh, we'll probably chat a little bit more about it, but, uh, kind of using, you know, like, uh, competition to validate, you know, to isolate and validate uh, particular, you know, skill sets and stuff. It was, uh, it was a great, great little thing for me. I know uh, that eventually, I'm sorry, uh, I, sorry, there was a little echo, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that kind of, it really kind of set the fire for me for competition, uh, you know, I went on to shoot uh, like the Youth Sock Sniper Comp uh, International. I won the International uh, U.S. Army Sniper Comp in 2014. Uh, then, you know, kind of led to like King of the Two Miles stuff. Uh, I just have a really fun time kind of doing that stuff. Um, but the, that whole experience instructing like really kind of opened me up to like all these deeper facets. And Well, and it's uh, crazy the- how, how comps give you that bug and kind of push you to another level. You know what I mean? Cause every, you think yeah. about the operational stuff that the training that way, but then you go to a comp and it's more of a game, you know, and it's that much more fun. And it's like, well, this is the kind of shooting I'm thinking beyond the work part of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really. It kind of, it, you know, it, it, it holds you to a standard of some sort, you know? Right. And, you know, you can kind of get, some people are like, well, that's not, you know, it's not like realistic or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, like, of course it's not realistic. Like, you know, you're not putting, you're not you, putting bullets in the meat. Which, right, right. I was just going to say, we don't have, do we that. don't have prisoners caged in a pen and they're saying, you know, you know, get the red one. No, we're not doing that. You yeah. know, but, uh, uh, but like, when you look at it you know, you really start kind of trying to isolate like particular skill sets or mechanics. Like that's like what, you know, that validation piece does in competition because you're not in control of it and you're you're problem solving uh a situation that you didn't build so you know it it can be uncomfortable and i'll tell you what man like you know probably the pinnacle of like my competition experience was winning you know uh the international comp but i'll tell you the the lessons and stuff that i learned are all those all those times like in competition where like i fucking woofed it it was just like, oh, damn, it's yeah. horrible. <laughs> like, well, and, you know, and how much like, of your training is getting there, setting up and doing your job, and then getting back versus the actual shot? You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's like there's so much that has to be done. I don't think people realize the the limitations of the shooting side of it. Yeah. You know, which is why competitions yeah. and those things work so well for people because that sort of fills in that missing blank of shooting. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, the, the round counts aren't nearly as big as I think people imagine. No, it's, uh, it's, yeah. Like, like operationally, like it's, it's a totally kind of different world, you know, like, like you said, like, 
you know, like people kind of, it, it's always kind of weird to, you know, like approach people, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty decent shooter, but you know, I've shot against, uh, some like, you know, international level dudes. I'm like, man, you guys are fucking good. Right. But then again, you know, like I look back and I'm like, well, you know, when I'm not on a gun, like I have 15 other things that I have to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's like, so it's like, all right, you know, when you, again, you know, isolating, I like to think of as isolating, you know, those, those skill sets and those mechanics. Like for me, like that's what I really got a lot out of like competition because, you know, there's certain aspects that uh, you can't really replicate on your own that you need somebody else to set up. Right. Now, uh, now in, in you're moving more into like the LE side, you're on the East coast just to kind of clear. Cause you know, you, yep. you started out yep. West coast now, but you're settled into the East coast is where you're working. Yeah. So, so I, yeah. So I let's jump into that LE kind of thing. Yeah. So I grew up uh, East coast. So I ended up moving back here. Uh, you know, when I got out, um, I got out in, right towards the end of 15 and uh, I was going to move back east. You know, I kind of got out and I knew I wanted to kind of get into the pre- precision rifle, uh, like instructing and stuff. And so I kind of I talked with a couple different people. We kind of got some ideas and stuff. And uh, I ended up back here up in Maine. Uh, so I live up in Maine, uh, out on the islands. And uh, I mean, it was rough. I knew it was going to be rough, you know, moving back here. Uh, but one of the things that like I really wanted to focus on as I kind of came back this direction was uh like le uh sniping programs um so as i started doing like a lot of these mill le comps i started having a lot of interaction uh with you know le guys and it was really awesome uh, this this incredible exchange um working with those dudes um they had some like really at first it was always kind of like the standoffish you know like everybody's like, oh, you know, LE mill sniping, like it's totally different things. Yeah. It's military snipers and cops are designated marksmen, you know, that kind of yeah, mindset. That, right. That was, it's like there's these two different camps, but as I kind of started, you know, intermingling and we started exchanging ideas and stuff, like I really started to like look at it and like from a mechanical aspect, especially like within special operations, uh, you know, a lot of our, our sniping platform is designed again, back to that direct action. So like the direct action operations or the raid is, you know, it's a short duration strike, you know, small scale actions into like a hostile denied or politically sensitive environments uh, using those specialized capabilities to like control, you know, tactical objectives. And I'm like, man, that sounds a whole lot like a SWAT call out. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, lo and behold, like it is, uh, and uh, so a lot of those mechanical skills are very much the same things, uh, you know, institutionally. Yeah, there's there's some pretty big uh, differences. But like the other day, uh, I was down uh, Jacksonville SWAT uh, down in Florida, hanging out with Jared Resson and, you know, sitting in the team room as these dudes were getting ready to go do a hit. And I mean, dude, if you close your eyes, it's the same. Like, yeah. You're in an ODA team. room. It's the same fucking shit. Like the same jokes. <laughs> it's all the same, man. And, uh, so, you know, like, as I came back, you know, um, I realized, you know, like that's, that's something that's a real passion of mine. Cause there's, uh, lots of things that like LE, uh, sniping is really good. Uh, but there's a lot of like kind of shortfalls sometimes, uh, in some of the training aspects and stuff that's just kind of dated and like really kind of my passion coming back here was kind of trying to bring everybody up to speed. 
Um, so big things like that we've been kind of focusing on, um, is like equipment procurement, uh, sustainment programs, you know, trying to help dudes like with getting the right guns and knowing like, you know, what's, you know, what's a good gun, you know, what's good equipment to set up. How are you going to sustain and maintain this stuff? Cause like sometimes we've got dudes that will come to our class. Like we had one, uh, we ran a class in Texas a couple of years ago. A dude showed up with a, uh, Accuracy International, so Mark, Mark two. Yeah. Uh, AE I mean, Mark two. Yep. Yeah. AE Mark two. And I'm like looking at this thing. I'm like, dog, I'm like, how long you've had this? And he's like, well, you know, I've been, you know, I've had this for, you know, X amount of years. I'm like, well, how long did they have it before you? And he's like, I don't know. Well, this guy had it for this long. And then this was this long. And uh, we're like, all right, like, let's look at like a real, like condensed, like training schedule. How many rounds are on this gun? And like, even being really conservative with the numbers, we're like, dude, this gun probably has like, in 20 to 25,000 pounds. I mean, it was still shooting. The same barrel? Like, Were they on the same barrel? Same barrel. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm like, damn, dude. Like, okay. Well, but like, you know. And, and to me, that's that the that's the thing with the LE guys that the, the military didn't do it until recently where they, they, they look at their programs, they reassess. I mean, you can, as much as I may bitch and moan about Horace type stuff, that was sort of a revamping of processes, right? We're trying to take a sledgehammer to our institutional incest. So, yeah. you know, we got, we're constantly doing the same thing over and over again. Of course, the doorbell rings, right? And, and um, I'll ignore it. Um, it. It's that institutional incest that you got to break. And unfortunately, the LE programs don't do that. So yeah, it's, it's so hard. Let me see if I can quiet him down a minute. But you talk, I'll <laughs> shut the door. <coughs> oh, sorry, I'm just yeah, dying here from a cold. Sorry. But, uh, no, I was just closing the door to the to the thing because the do- of course somebody rings the doorbell and the dog goes yeah. nuts. Um, um y- yeah, but yeah, that's, uh, totally the institutional uh, like incest. You know, that's like something we experienced it. Like you're saying, man. Like when we hit, you know, when we hit 2001, man, and you know the shit fucking hit the fan, and we realized, hey, a lot of the stuff that we've been doing. Like doesn't actually work. Right. It worked. It worked in training and theory and concept. Um, but that's one of the things we've kind of had like this advantage of being able to refine it, like through experience. You know, that's one of the things that kind of really shocked me. You know, like when I started uh, like going through like uh, you know every year like or it's like every other year ASA puts out like the annual reporting. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. They put out. The, they put out their letter. Right. You know, I was looking through the averages and you know like it's between like 11 to 13 LE snapper engagements per year. I'm like, man, like there's been days where I've, I've shot more people before breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's, it's not like, it's not like trying to wave like a big dick around, but it's like, we just, we have so much exposure to certain portions of the sniping mechanics that it's forced us to process and develop, you know, new things, better things. And so like, that's a lot of those lessons learn that we're trying to bring back uh, especially like uh some of the newer stuff um you know like night vision stuff like that's a huge huge one again going back looking at like the asa stuff you know i think uh the last couple years here like for engagements it's been averaging like 30 to 40 percent of like le engagements are happening 
period of darkness or limited visibility. But only six of those engagements right, utilize night vision. So it's like, all right, guys, you know, and everybody's like, oh, you know, it's not it's not Fallujah. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, but <laughs> isn't Fallujah, but it's not Mayberry. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it, it may not be Fallujah. So you could shoot every single guy you see, but it's still a threat. It's still a problem. It's still something you have to solve. And you yeah. should be solving it to the best of your ability and not hoping things work out in your favor. Yeah. And we've been that's one of the things we've really been trying to help with, too, because when you look at it from a funding thing, you know, especially like night vision, like that's a big that's a big package. Uh, you know, you're throwing down, you know, you're throwing down 10 G's you know, on a device like it needs to be the right device. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen uh, like the PVS 24s or uh, the CRVDs. It was uh, the insight ones. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the lighter the, ones. I know which ones you mean. The tan. Yeah. Ones. And they're for uh, they're they're mostly there's two different versions. There's one that's rated for five, five, six. Which is usually the one that it was see, a CDNV LR. There's the LR and the regular, right? Yeah, and so you see some of these like five five six ones that are going on like these you know, seven six two rifles, and it's like dog. Like if you smoke that thing, like <laughs> you're going to be it. out like nine or ten G's because like you just didn't know. And it's it's not like because they're stupid. Like they just don't know what they don't know. Right, right. It would be like somebody not realizing the recoil of a scar. And they're putting stuff on scars and it's breaking things. And they're going, well, why is it breaking? My scope is terrible. And it's like, dude, that's a scar. It's just beating the snot out of your equipment. Yeah, man. And I like, you know, like for me, like if I break something, I throw it back in the arms room and I grab another one. Yeah. It's it's totally different, you know, when you're having to write, you know, grants for money and stuff. And like, it's not an easy process. So that's one of the things that we've actually spent a lot of time on, um, as I've kind of come back here and I started, uh, in 2016, uh, started working with the company, uh, Ridgeline Outfitters. So, uh, we're kind of this composite of like Marine Corps. So Alex Hartman, he's a, he's a hog Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that name. I knew I, I may have met him before, but I've heard the name. Yeah. So, uh, me and him, Dave Seymour, a couple other SF dudes, uh, basically, we kind of came together and we, we formed this company that, you know, our main focus and passion is, you know, doing, you know, this mill LE OGA, you know, thing uh, to kind of try to bring, you know, everybody up on speed because all, all these organizations kind of suffer from those similar symptoms of that, you know, we call it uh, institutional incest, uh, but really it's just like a lack of institutional mm-hmm. knowledge sometimes. Yeah. Like now here's a question for you um before and i'll forget it if i don't say it real quick like when you you sit you get you get a a a group a team however you look at it um and and you you go out and you're going to work with them for the first time so day one you're on the range with them you're checking them out what do you find is the biggest thing like we're talking about the institutional incest type of thing with their training that you have to fix oh man where do you begin? I, it's, it's I know so it's diverse. so much, but uh, like just yeah. like some big bullet pointy stuff, because I, I don't think people realize we talk about, oh, this is not good. That like I want to with you get into a few specifics because yeah. we just um, we, we, we've I think we've danced around this conversation. And I, I think you're a good person to get so specific with. Yeah, probably um, the biggest ones is kind of equipment related. So. Uh, you know, a right tool for the right job. Okay. In most, some cases, wrong tools. Um, and it's gotten a lot better. This is probably one of the areas where 
like law enforcement side has kind of really benefited from like the competition side with like mm-hmm. the PRS and the NRL. Like there's, you're starting to see a lot of influx of a lot better equipment. Um, from there, it's really like gun setup is probably. Yeah. Okay. These simple fundamental things that like you take for granted sometimes. Uh, it's actually, uh, so it's one of the things I just, just doing last week was, uh, putting together, uh, like tutorial videos because it's something that we've had to address so many times. Um, just guns like not set up, you know, right for people. Well, because they're handed off. Like it's the armory, yeah. but it's not. They they don't take it to that. Like you're assigned that rifle, make it your own. But these guys look at it where, yeah, they issued me this rifle. I'm not gonna touch it. It's it's you know it's it's here. I take it out when I need it. I, I'm good enough and blah blah blah. Without realizing that how you know, how they can move to that next level just yeah. by fine tuning that rifle set up to them. Yeah. That's, that's like the big thing is this real, like getting guys to realize how much they're leaving on the table. Like when they don't have a gun or an optic that's set up, right. Nice. Uh, and from there, like the other big thing is just fundamentals. Uh, it's something that I really took for granted, you know, coming from the Marine Corps, uh, even, you know, basic riflemen, like, the fundamentals of marksmanship are just drilled into you from day one. And, you know, not everybody has that background. Even when I came to the army, it was, it was pretty fucking shitty. Well, and, and I think people missed, and this is a good point that people don't understand. It's like boot camp is so crazy with that stuff. You know, you got a week of grass week, you're sitting around these barrels and doing dry fires every friggin' day for a week straight before they even give you one live round. And they expect you to be sort of that marksman coming out of boot camp. That's part of the whole process. That's part of getting, earning your, your Eagle Globe and Anchor and all that. But it doesn't end there with the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps doesn't basically go, you did it in boot camp. You should know it. We're good enough. It's like that one area of focus where every time there is an opportunity to address it, the Marine Corps does. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big big thing and like i said i think i took it for granted for a long time like just having that hardwired in so like when we get guys like you'll get really good dudes but you also get dudes that don't have that background so when you kind of compile like the the lack of fundamentals or the lack of equipment that's fitting people the right way um like those are probably the biggest things and when we fix those it's amazing like how quickly things progress and pick Yeah. Yep. And now do you see, are you doing a bigger shift now towards like alternate position with them? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's one of the big portions of, uh, like our SWAT sniper basic course that we've been running. Uh, it's heavy on positional because that's one of the the lessons learned we brought back from, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, like the ability to deploy like operationally, uh, like in those, especially the urban environments, like you need to be able to problem solve from like positional stuff. Uh, the other big one is tripods. Like mm-hmm. um, I learned, you know, I learned a little bit of tripod, even when I went through uh, like the Sodic, like level two, you know, we learned tripod. Uh, it actually wasn't until like I started kind of teaching or working on a Kalen where I really started to appreciate like what you can do on a tripod and yeah. like, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, we've been shooting off a tripod. We've been shooting off tripod since Black Powder. Like, it's not right. new. There's tons of pictures of World War One, uh, even prior, of guys with tripods. Yeah, but what's happened 
uh, which I think some people don't really realize is what's happened in like just the last 10 years, not only the tripod technology, but the refinement of technique mm -hmm. is huge. I mean, we're, so it's part of our SWAT sniper basic qual now is, is tripod shooting. And I mean, you're getting dudes, you know, who show up, you know, on crisis site, tripod, you know, stowed, deployed, rifle up, rounds off. I think the current record we have is like 16 seconds. Wow, nice. Like a tripod standing. So like this is, and you know, our standard that we usually hold people to is, you know, right around like uh like 50 second mark. But our whole point is, you know, like there's been so much refinement in this stuff. And like I said, going back to experience, like, like the soft units, uh, you know, Marine Corps scout snipers, like we've, we've had a ton of exposure, you know, we've been going to war for now for almost 20 fucking years. And like this process has been really well refined. And that's, again, this is these things that we're trying to bring back and keep the game up because, you know, like the TPPs that we're seeing, like we bring them back, but also that other stuff is migrating as well. Like there's nothing ever stays the same. And uh, you're, you're starting to see that like in, you know, the threat forecasting and stuff like the events that are happening that Ellie have to respond to. It's not always going to be the same, you know, and, you know, you look at some of the tragedies that are occurring and unfortunately, like, what do we want to try to avoid is like having a tragedy be the catalyst for change. Like that's yeah, exactly right. You don't want to be reactive. You want to be proactive and go against it. And and yeah. to me, I've always said, you know, given given the choice, if I only can bring one thing, even if that choice is a bipod versus a tripod, I want a tripod. hundred percent. Like now, like when I deploy, like. I don't go anywhere. So my sniper rifle goes somewhere. So the tripod is right next to it. Like that's how much of a game changer it is. Like once you, once you have the techniques in order to utilize it, like, dude, like it's freaking unbelievable. Yeah. Are you starting to see more of the bags and things kind of cycle in? Because on an LE standpoint, they don't have to go hump 15 miles with the pack on their back and all that stuff. They're probably rolling in in a vehicle. They're going to spill out. They got it like a raid, like you're saying. It's a quick action raid, and they're not going as far. They're going to set up sort of a static hide site. But do yeah. you notice them bringing game changers and puff pillows and things like that for that additional support? Yeah. Um, not so much the puff pillows. I said a game changer is probably the one that I've seen the most. Um, especially with some of the new like super like light fills man like yep dude like some of i don't know it's like filled with like unicorn farts or something like that shit is unbelievably light um, it's when the bags i don't know if you've seen them in just the bags with the fill like when you open the bag the stuff will like go up in the air like float yeah it's fucking incredible like technology is amazing man yeah yeah 2020 there's never been a better time to be a sniper than now um, so I remember back in the day, man, like humping around, you'd hump around like a sandbag and an e-tool. <laughs> right. <laughs> tent <laughs> like, poles. That. <laughs> that was my yeah. tripod was my tent. Matter of fact, I grabbed because I wanted to do a video to kind of show it. Um, just like out of a goof, I grabbed the shelter half set. So I would have the tent poles that way carried normally. So I could show like, dude, when, you know, we didn't always use our ruck. You know, our ruck was like that. You're running through, you're, you're, you know, you're patrolling through, you're going, then the ruck's going to flip off. You're going to drop down on it. You're going to take your shot. But if we were setting up in something a little more permanent, we used the the, the tripod made out of the uh, shelter half poles, you know? Yep. And, and yep. so it was a more solid than the ruck was. And we didn't have a bipod. We didn't have the tripods back then. 
but it is amazing when like I've gone back in Google uh, tripod shooting in the military and you look at the World War One stuff. There was a ton of tripods in World War One because of the trenches yeah. and shit. Yeah, man, that's all that, uh, you know, that it's not really exactly urban hide, but that's basically the fundamental techniques. It's, it's all urban hide techniques. Yep. Uh, in a, a semi urban environment, I guess it's a man made yeah, man made environment. environment. Right, right. You know, like the tripod. Tripod is king. Like even even rule stuff, man. Like the tripod allows you to get in any position. Like basically, if you can see the target, you can set your tripod up and lays that bad boy. You know, like you're not confined to a firing position that's prone, like off the bipods, or you know, having to build something janky in the woods, like. The tripod man, like I said, my sniper rifle goes somewhere, and tripods go. Mm-hmm. And and then you know, even with the urban side, and and I don't, I you know, I don't think it's as critical as it is overseas. But what the Israelis with their hides, like their tents that they can build inside rooms, they yep. have those. Yep. Um, I, I I know there's a word for them, and I can't think off the top of my head right now. But they're sort of the the quick deployed with the um, you know, and then it creates sort of that that tent. And they can shoot out of it. Nobody can see into the room. On the Israelis, it's huge Israeli. But on the Israeli yeah. side, they're always worrying about somebody shooting back in more. So I don't think our LEs worry about that as much other than to say, hey, don't let the news camera see where I am uh, kind yeah. of deal. But the odds of that guy getting some kind of incoming fire becomes pretty slim. Uh, you know, yeah. here where the Israelis, they're, they're always expecting that. But their their equipment for urban sniping is is through the roof. Yeah, the Israelis have a lot of good urban sniping techniques, and actually, a lot of uh, a lot of my techniques that I've kind of brought back from the LE community, the big one has actually been urban stuff. So LE does like a lot of like urban observation. Um, right, the surveillance is stuff. huge, man. Yeah, so it's uh, not always necessarily shooting, but, like, those observation stuff, dude. And I'll tell you what, like, I, my mind has been blown so many times by some of these creative techniques that these LE dudes are coming up with. Um, I had an awesome – I'm not going to put it out, but there's I had an awesome experience with uh, some FBI HRT dudes that, like – dude, it just started, like, this train, and it, it's this ongoing, like, TTP that, like – I got from them and then I started teaching it back out to dudes. And then like those dudes would take it and refine it and bring it back to me. They're like, Hey man, check out what we did. Like, I said, Oh dude, that's even more badass." Yeah. 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 Then like I teach, I refine it and I teach it back out. And then it's just, just this never ending cycle. It's turned into like, it's just fucking crazy. But, uh, you know, that's one thing that they really bring to the table is that experience, like just from the observation, the urban observation, uh, I've gotten a lot back from them. Like I said, it's it's this exchange, right? So yep. we have, you know, a lot of strong suits on like the kinetic aspect. You know, we we do a lot of work kinetically, uh, but, you know, they have other things where they're doing a shit ton of work, too. And so, I mean, that's it's, where it's yeah, that's where my background when I got out of the Marine Corps and then I was actually doing electrical work because I went to a tech school and, and took electrical and had an electrical license. But then I got recruited by private investigators to do surveillance and stuff. And the first job was this giant uh, deal in New York with the trains, Amtrak. And and it was like $5 million per person. And there was a group of three guys that they were kind of, you know, doing counter uh, intel kind of work between them. 
because they had $5 million on the line for each guy. And uh, so they were doing workers' comp fraud, insurance liability, all that kind of shit. So this one guy, that one guy lived upstate uh, New York by Schenectady there. Uh, another one was mobile, and we actually nailed that guy in Connecticut. And then the third guy lived in Amish country in Pennsylvania. And he was surrounded by horses and carriages. So anytime anybody tried to go after him, they, you know, they got snagged because this yeah. this guy was <laughs> looking for horses and carriages. Well, the company had brought me in through the Marine Corps stuff. And, um, you know, I had to ghillie up and do all that. I wore a ghillie suit in Staten Island. You know what I mean? Doing <laughs> I surveillance. Say that. <laughs> right, right. You know, what I did is I, I put all uh, I had like a dance uh, backpack, you know, just a little, high, you know, school backpack. I look like a little kid anyway, if you don't see my bald head. And, and at the time, you know, so I'm walking down the street in Staten Island. There was this little bit of, you know, woodsy spot. And I ditch into the woods, almost like, yeah, I got to go take a piss in the woods kind of thing. Ditch into the woods, pull out my ghillie out of the thing, and then set the cameras and everything up and, and watch people across that way. But, yeah, I mean, the surveillance side of things teaches you so much because it's so long. You can't get caught. And, and it was it was a huge eye opener that that's that I became that was my job until I started doing the due diligence part of things and then went to rifles only. But prior to all that, all I did was surveillance, you know, so that was that was my job for years. Yeah, it's a it's a huge portion of the craft. And like a lot of people don't realize, you know, like as even as like uh, a mill like saw sniper, like. I've probably spent 99.5% of my time like in a hide, just watching, just observing, collecting, you know, uh, you know, sending information back. Um, it's, that's a huge part of it. And like, obviously when it's time to go kinetic, all of a sudden that becomes, you know, hundred percent what you do. So you gotta, you gotta be good. But um, that observation, man, that's, that's really, that's key, man. Nice. Nice. Um, Going into the, some of the other stuff, you also have a HTI background, right? So some of the bigger guns. Yeah. So one of uh, it's kind of was uh, it's kind of my my baby that uh, I rebirthed uh, when I was out uh, at uh, Sifsic uh, at the end of 2015. Uh, I'd I'd come back uh, from an Afghan deployment, and uh, my Afghan deployment it was a really good one, uh, pretty kinetic. Uh, but pretty much all of the engagements were beyond, you know, a thousand yards. I, I remember showing up like my very first, uh, you know, I showed up uh, in the AO and I, I had my 110 and uh, I was looking around. And I was like, God damn, dude, like there's <laughs> nothing inside of a thousand yards here. And uh, so I immediately switched to the wind mag, which I you know I didn't only have data out to 12. And I was like that barely gets me anything here and uh it really kind of forced me into this elr uh kind of aspect um our average engagement for that trip was like 1600 meters yeah and uh, you had the new bullet then though right so you had the 220 the 240 so the 220s had just come out okay uh the alpha 191 mod one but we we're having issues with them where uh we're having a lot of uh, chamber pressure. Oh yeah, because they're hot as shit. Stuck. Yeah, yeah, twenty nine seventy out of that gun. Yeah, so I was running them, and I got a couple like stuck bolts, and I was like, "No, nah, man, I'm gonna." I went back to the one nineties because my uh, so I was running a Mark thirteen uh, mod five, 
and I had uh, really good luck with the one nine. It's like that was, yeah, it was like yep. a quarter minute gun. Like it was a freaking laser beam. And I was working at right around like 9,000 feet elevation. The, the mod uh, five, that's the aardvark dick, right? Where they didn't finish. Yeah, the front. that's the one, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's my girl though, man. Like that thing, uh, that thing was zippy zap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I ran that uh, and had really good luck with that. Um, but we were starting to have engagements uh, like right at that 2000 mark. And I, I remember one, one engagement uh, event that we had and like, I was just getting multiple target exposures at like 2021. But like, it was the difference, like when the target would pick up and move to a different spot, like even just a short distance, like my data was like dramatically changing. It was just the kill clock had to keep on being reset. And I was like, man, this is just not working. And, uh, so I did what I didn't want to do, which I called back to the soda. And I'm like, Hey man, I need you to ship out my one Oh seven. And I fucking, I hated the one Oh seven dude. Like I'd shot it in school and, uh, everybody like, did. Most people don't realize it's big green. They're the only guys you get the PFC and big green who gets his hand on a friggin' Barrett and he's a happy camper. Nobody else likes yeah. it. it. It made me so freaking mad, uh, to do it. But I was like, dude, I need something to reach out beyond 2000 and so i get this thing out there and i'm like man i'm like i got i gotta get dad on this gun i gotta figure out how to run this thing and i talked with a few people uh a few dudes uh that were kind of like my mentors from the sniper course and uh you know they had had really good experience with it they were like really senior shooters and so i, I kind of called back to them and i was like yo like like what's the deal man like how do i make this girl fuck and so they kind of gave me some tips and stuff and I just, I would go out, you know, did you, did you stick with, little, did, did you stick with Ralphus or something else? So I went with Ralphus. They were like, Hey man, like if you're going to do this, like Ralphus, like the, uh, it's accurate as shit. People don't really, it blows up, but it's accurate. Really good. Right. Uh, so the Ralphus is really good. And then, uh, the M8 API is actually not bad either. Um, so I got like a huge pallet of Rafis all to myself and I would go out and I would shoot a can of Rafis like in one afternoon, like every day I'd go out for like about a week straight, probably almost two, I think almost two weeks. I'd shoot a can of Rafis. Don't do this at home guys. Cause like, yeah, you'll break your brain. Fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. We'll get into TBIs and stuff a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I really started to get a hang for this gun. And it got to the point where I could get right around like a minute and a quarter to a minute and a half out of this gun. And it wasn't fucking easy. Like, cause a lot of people don't realize one, like shooting semi-autos is fucking hard, dude. Like even if you're going from a five, five, six to a seven, six, two, like it's a steep learning curve. If your fundamentals are not fucking on point, that gun's going to eat your lunch. You, you try to tell people that and they don't get it. They think I could shoot my mouse gun. Everything else is the same. It, it, it's yeah. not. Yeah, that's a lesson that we kind of learned, um, you know, pretty early on, like within soft, you know, cause we, you know, like everybody else run the M24s and then we had the SR25s. And when SR25s started getting big, you know, like dudes would like get them. And then they'd be like, you know, seasoned, seasoned dudes would get behind the gun. They'd be shooting like three of them away. They'd be like, oh, man, this gun fucking sucks. Like, fuck this thing. Or double tapping and, on the trigger and saying the trigger is no good. Yeah, because they're, they're all light. I mean, you get on an M24 or M40, man, like, those those guns practically shoot themselves. <laughs> and, but you get on a gas gun, SR25 or the 110, like, that thing will eat your lunch. Now, 
imagine magnifying all that with like a 50 cal semi-auto like it's the same thing except even worse because like the 107 82 like it's a recoil operated system so as soon as you pull the trigger like that whole gun starts recoiling and the action starts recoiling as well and then you run into some other aspects um like you have air column movement like when you look at like the bore diameter right right like so you have like this compression of the air calm within the bore and that's like, that pre-ignition thing that people don't realize with the bolt moving yeah and if you look at uh like slow motion footage man like you can you can freaking see it like at the muzzle break like you can see stuff happening before that before that bullet even leaves the barrel and uh so that it has a lot of things going for it. and then the other big one with the with the 107 particularly is the uh just how thin the barrel is a lot of people don't realize like it looks thick as shit but like you gotta remember there's like a half inch right 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 it's it's basically the 50 cal equivalent of like a hunting barrel so you shoot like a mag through this thing and the barrel like will start to walk and uh you know so like you know a lot of times in school like i look back and i'm like yeah you know i got down i jammed up the mag i shot like shit and i'm like well shit grab another mag shoot again and like it looks even worse and just realizing you know the combination like one if you have poor fundamentals it's it's not going to happen two you use shit ammo like you're trying to use ball or something not going to happen and three you go more than like a mag or two and the gun's going to start walking and so like that's right you kind of hear like this whole you know oh it's only a three or four minute gun and i'm like mm, yeah it, it definitely it could turn out that way uh but what i found is you know being aware of like that heat sensitivity, being good on your fundamentals and using like good lots, uh, like especially that Rafis. Um, like I said, I was getting a minute and a quarter to a minute and a half. Um, Did you ever shoot the TTI solids like the SEALs use? No, I never had an opportunity to like work with any of that. I pretty much, the Rafis worked. Yes. And especially where I was at, like it made, um, so one accuracy was, was pretty key. I mean, one and a quarter to one and a half, I mean, a lot of people have died to one and a half minute guns. Yeah. They, yeah. they will do work. Uh, but the other big one was uh, the explosive effect. So like for those people not familiar with Rafis, it's basically a 50 cal like bullet with a cup uh, that's still, it has a like 277 grain like tungsten penetrator uh, in that sucker. And it's just surrounded by uh, petten. Uh, it's basically a high explosive. Yeah, it's so, like a, it's like a, um, a, it's more of a, what is it a, a different variant of like uh, C4? Yeah, it's uh, it's even it's more powerful than C4. It has a little bit more punch, and uh, when this this hits stuff, it basically turns this into a little like mini uh, charge uh, that, that's directional. Uh, so it basically fans out and about uh, I think it's like a twenty degree angle from whatever you hit. Um, and so it gives it off a nice bright flash too. So when you're looking at some of these ELR distances and you're self-spotting, like it's fucking money. Yeah, yeah. So you just you see one go and you see where it is, and it's really easy to make a second round correction. Uh, and like I said, like even if you get kind of close, especially in our area that we're working in, we had a lot of mountainous terrain with like rocks and stuff. You know, this would hit like uh, like when we get dudes like down in like cracks and stuff where you couldn't quite see them. Like if you start laying in some Rafis rounds, like it's it's like a directional like claymore. Yeah. Like side of like, like a mini mortar out. almost. Oh yeah, dude, and it it's it's lethal. Yeah. It is freaking lethal. We, um, I it, shot 
half inch AR 500 at 400 yards, that penetrator goes right through. So you get about a three eighths inch hole, just clean on through an AR 500 plate at like 400 yards. Yeah. And it's, it's fricking, it's, that's the beauty of a chemical payload like that. Like you're not relying on kinetic interface. So like it allows you to shoot to any distance. Like we had, we had one engagement that was at 3982 and I mean, we were still getting right around between 70 to 90% detonation rates at like those distances. Uh, and like the muzzle velocity or the uh, projectile velocity at that point was like right around like, I think we were down for a DA. It was like down between like seven to 800 feet per second. Was that working because you're coming off the mountain and letting gravity help? Uh, that particular engagement was basically, uh, that was a ridge line across one ridge line to another ridge. Oh, was it? So it wasn't even dropping down. Like you weren't losing like a thousand feet of elevation and letting gravity help you. You were actually going across at that distance, huh? Yeah, that, that was just, that was almost, almost level shot, uh, going across the valleys. So it's, um, that, uh, yeah, come on, man, that was a beer bet, wasn't it? Uh, it was, well, that situation was, was, it was real interesting when we ended up, um, <laughs> kind of ending up with this situation, the AO that we were working in was, we were the only team, uh, we had a small, uh, eight man team and we were the only Americans within about 60 miles. And so, uh, we had, we were kind of working with a bunch of like the ANA soft dudes, uh, Afghan national <laughs> yep. army guides and, um, they had a couple outposts that were in the surrounding areas and what would happen is they would get, uh, they would get kind of lit up in a firefight and, uh, in order to respond to them at that time, because this was, uh, this is a 2012 trip and it was, uh, kind of a little bit restrictive. So we had like mortars and stuff that were organic, um, but like release authority and stuff and like approval for like the overhead air, like the basically the kill clock was ended up being right around 30 to 40 minutes and so like these dudes kind of the taliban dudes like knew hey man we can we can fuck shit up for about 30 minutes and we gotta scoot or otherwise we're gonna get pounded and so this one particular day uh these cats open up on one of the one of the outposts and i can see these dudes i'm like they're like like i said so we're shooting from one ridge line over a ridge line to another ridge line i can see these dudes and they're laying into this post with a pkm you know, I'm like, I'm like, motherfuckers. I'm like, I'm like, sooner or later, they're like, going to shoot one of these, one of our dudes. And then nobody's going to want to work for us. And we're going to pay the funeral bill. I'm like, this is all a whole big deal. Cause like a lot of these dudes I trained, you know, I trained them up myself. Uh, so like, I know them, you know, I have a personal relationship with them. Uh, and I'm, I'm their boss, you know, like they come to me with all their grievances. And like, the last thing I want to do is have to deal with like this administrative mess. And uh, so I'm kind of looking at it. I know like about how far it is. And I kind of, I turned to uh, Jeremy Stringer. Uh, he was my team star at the time. And I'm like, hey man, you think you throw a 50 cal over those mountains? And he's like, I think you might. I'm like, I'm gonna go get the 50. <laughs> so uh, we set up on top of, uh, you know, this little sandbag uh, roof. And, uh, you know, they're, they're blasting away with a PKM, man. And uh, so we set up and, uh, so we, we laser, uh, we had, uh, the LRTV, this super cool, like thermal laser range finder thing. And we lased, uh, this little, this rock outcropping that they're in at like, uh, like I said, I think it's, uh, 3982 is what it came back at. And they're like, man, I'm like, damn dude, like that's a long way. So I'm like, what's the elevation on that? It was, it was like, uh, 
It's like, I'm down 117 mils. I'm like, dude, I don't have that elevation on my turrets <laughs> or my scope. I was running the, uh, one of the early uh, prototypes from uh, the Leopold Mark IV. Like I was just going to say, it's probably a Mark IV on there. Yeah. So, uh, you, so you, what did you get? 60? The, you got 60 uh, minutes? <laughs> so it wasn't the original Mark IV. It's the, it's the new It's the one that was on the 2010. So, so the M3. Uh, it's the M3 with the half no. minute, not the half minute one? No, it's the, the M1 uh, or the uh, M2010. That that uh, it's the six and a half. Oh, the new one. The bi- oh, it's the one the with the push one. button turret. The push button turret. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Got, yeah, 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 yeah. The twenty ten. I'm thinking right, right. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, an early prototype, one of those that I mounted on the, the yeah. One sec, I hate the the big tall. Video. It had the big tall turret with the push button unlock. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, but even then, I only had I had about fifty mils of elevation altogether. I'm like, well, that's not gonna work. And so then I was like, I got the bright idea. I'm like, all right, let's just use the spotting scope because we had an old uh one of the old uh leopold gold rings yep so we measured out uh kind of going up the mountain in the back and it came right up to the top of the mountain and i had to hold over like about four mils like off the top of the mountain and i'm like so i measured it a couple times made sure i was in line and i picked out basically this aiming spot i'm like all right man i'm I'm like that's it's about 117 man like all right let's do this like fuck it we got nothing to lose and uh, so, I mean, I'm like looking across the valley and, uh, you know, Jeremy's like starting to you know look at the wind stuff. So we got the elevation. Jeremy's looking at wind. And I mean, I'm like looking down because we're like, we're on one hilltop. There's a valley in front of us. There's another hilltop. It's another valley. We've got like fucking dust tornadoes like going back and forth. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm just on the gun, man. I'm just a wet bag of sand. So I'm just like, dude, man, this is all on you. <laughs> and so he's like. He's sitting there and he's looking at the wind, like doing whispering to the gods or whatever. I don't know what he's doing. He comes back. He's like, all right, I want you to go ahead and give me left 12. I'm like, 12 mils? <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, now. And uh, so I, I kind of come off, like, give it a little left 12. And I'm like, all right, let's send it. So I send this one out there. So it's boom, goes. And I kind of come back down on target to try to observe effect and sit there and I'm like, what's the time of flight on that? So, <laughs> I was just going to say a minute. <laughs> I don't forget what it was, but it was long enough to have like this conversation like between yeah, the two. You lit a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. And then, bam, dude, like first round impact, like half mil low, like right below this rock outcropping. I'm like, fuck, dude. Like that was a fucking good wind call. <laughs> I'm like, how the fuck did you do that? And he's like, fuck it, man, let's do this again. And uh, so we kind of refined it and basically ended up putting about uh, eight to ten rounds. I think we're just shy of full mag there, and uh, into like this rock outcrop where these dudes were. And uh, dude, it, that ended. It ended the fight real quick. Yep. Uh, those dudes. Uh, uh, we never confirmed if we actually had any uh, any hits, but basically, in result, like they never fired from that position again, and that outpost was never attacked again. Uh, and so like, we kind of just use it as like this, you know, terrain denial, like it's the best way to describe it. Nice. No, that's, uh, that's a good, that's a good job right there. And you know, a lot of people, you know, I mean, ELR has kind of since then become like this passion of mine, uh, because of those practical applications. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh man, you know, just, you know, that's like cast territory. I'm like, well, we were in an area where like there was ticks going on, like there were multiple ticks going on, which a tick is like a trooping contact. So like. Troops in contact, like within the area, like 
those assets are getting pushed to whoever has priorities. Right, so right. You're you're, you're down on the totem pole. You're not getting that ear until yeah, it's done. Like if your situation's not fucking desperate and some dude has like 150 dudes surrounding them, like they're going to get priority. And same thing with like, you know, mortars and stuff. Like not everything is on demand like that. Uh, or this is like, I mean, we basically nonchalantly walked our way through this process in about five minutes. Nice. So it's it's a it's a tool and technique and so when i came back to uh first group um to teach uh that was kind of one of my my big ticket items that like i wanted to bring back was this elr but also kind of go back into some of the hrt or uh hit stuff the hard target interdiction and in 2015 i basically rebooted uh the sodic uh hti program uh, program uh, to kind of bring this back um, as, as we started looking at some of the threat assessments, like globally, not just what we're seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but going back to some of that unconventional uh, aspect of things like the traditional uncon- unconventional warfare uh, mission sets, mm-hmm. uh, especially against like conventional. I was just going to say, but even up in the ISIS area and Syria and stuff, they armor up like stupid vehicles and yeah. just come bonsai at you. So you, yeah. you, you got to kind of punch through their, their it's, it's, you know, their lightly armored uh, SUV, you know? Yeah. So um, that kind of became a big focus for me. And uh, I basically, I got the approval to uh, spend my time and reworking that. And we kind of watched it. Uh, and it was something that had kind of existed before. Um, but, you know, it just kind of fallen to the wayside. And it was funny because like about a week after uh, we finished it, had a dude from I think it was Natick Natick Labs like showed up and he's like hey man he's like I'm from fucking so and so like I need everything you guys have on HIT like to support you know uh, Korean contingency operations and I was like well <laughs> funny you should ask it just so happened so, to have something right here yeah. nice um, so that's always kind of been a big passion of mine you know because uh, especially from like the mill side of things like. There's a lot of aspects uh, that you can really uh, get, you know, use that ELR, HTI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much going on. It, it really can go to the, the, the edge, which is why you see the King of Two Mile and that stuff that they're doing. You know, it, it's they're pushing to four grand, but they're making 2,500 hittable. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so now we'll push to five grand and make three grand hittable. Yeah, I mean that's and that's the reality of like that's that's where I, I really love like the King of the Two Mile things like that is it's pushing that technology like yeah I think a lot of people sometimes forget like dude like twenty years ago a thousand yards was a long ways right the, uh, you know yeah. every student with a bucket list was to shoot a thousand yards and now the bucket list for people when they come want to go and shoot our mile yeah so it's uh it, like King of the Two Miles just like one good example of like you know just pushing those limits. And I had a chance, uh, uh, awesome chance in 2018. Uh, my buddy, John guy, he, uh, I know were you, I was there with John. Were you, um, yeah. Okay. I I saw you there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I saw you milling around taking pictures. I was in the zone, man. So yeah. Yep. Yep. I probably Uh, have a picture of you cause I took a lot of pictures of John and the teams cause you guys uh, connected that, uh, season. Yep, yep. We uh, ended up uh, taking fourth and eighth uh, that year. Yep. And we had a, uh, a connection at the two mile target, uh, Duncan. Um, and that was a great, it was just a great validation because I came, basically, John called me. 
man, it was like, it was short notice. He's like, Hey man, he's like one of our primary shooters, uh, had to drop out. He's like, can you come do this? Cause he kind of knew my, my ELR HCI background. I'm like, yeah, man, sure. I'm like, dude, you're going to pay me to come down and shoot. <laughs> like, <laughs> hell yeah. 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 So I showed up, you know, like I, we met up in Phoenix and drove up and I had about on my gun. I think I had 20, maybe 20 or 30 rounds max yep. the day before I zeroed it and I trued it at like 2000 and like, that's all I had on that gun. man. like, and I went to town with it. And nice. So it worked out well, right? At, uh, I ended up having some issues with, uh, uh, what's that little mount thing there? The, uh, TACCOM HQ. Oh yeah. Uh, you, did you have it on the scope and what it loosen up? Oh, I, I, so that's one of the things I, I I'm kicking myself for cause I didn't have time to validate it, you know, so I, I had the rail mounted one and I had never used it until like the finals, the day of, <laughs> and what we didn't realize was the rail on my, my Cadex was just slightly off center. And so we were doing good. Uh, initially it wasn't, wasn't too, too bad. Like we were just crushing it. And then I threw that thing on and then next thing I know, like threw your point of aim off and yeah, I yeah. couldn't see anything. And then we finally found it too late, uh, but it was about 15 mils off to the right. We're just a teeny tiny bit of camp, but that little bit of camp, I think we were shooting at like, uh, what were we at? I don't know what, which one we were at, but it was beyond 2K. It was beyond 25. Man. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of camp, especially with that 375, dude. Like, it just kind of bumps you out, man. And I lost, I, I didn't see where it went and it took us quite a few rounds to find it. But by then it was just too late. But right, well, it's like Mark Lonsdale that same year hitting the five round group into the friggin' frame and not one person saw it. We saw it in the TV, yeah, but yeah, nobody it saw it on the line and he never changed his point of aim and he shot a group. In, I mean, it was a gorgeous group at, at uh, you know, oh. 2,000 yards in the friggin' frame of a target. You know, and, and it was like a five inch group we watched uh Lonsdale yeah, do. I remember I remember seeing that, man. That was that was pretty that was an impressive fucking group. And yeah, it was that, sick. That's what's amazing about this the technology and, and stuff and like And I'm the jerk. I almost walked out and said something and and you know, because I want I'm like, oh my god, dude, if somebody just told him to move over this little bit, he's money. And it was the <laughs> same thing. There's that guy who shoots the uh handmade fifty cal variant. Um, yep. and he kept canting his rifle for every shot. He's pulling the bolt and I'm watching him roll over and I wanted to walk up to him and say, Hey dude, you're canting the rifle, but I didn't want to get involved in the game. You know? Yeah. It's, it can be sometimes painful. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're seeing it. It's like, yeah. no, Hey, before, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, those dudes like, I mean, it's no, it's no small thing. To get out to the King of Two Mile. Well, and to a, make this was the first depth. year he made the finals. Yeah. And uh, this guy had shot it every year. He he hand does everything. It's his own loads, his own like he, he builds it everything from the bullet up. And and he's yeah. sort of, you know, no money, no financing kind of guy. And this was the first year he qualified for the top ten, you know, for the last day. And I'm watching him canting the rifle, I was like, "No!" <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's 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 heartbreaking sometimes. But again, yeah. like like even with all the technology and stuff, I mean, all that stuff, it goes right back to the fundamentals of marksmanship. Like whether you know it's you know getting behind the gun, you know, with your body position, like that's a huge one. Your body position, sideline, side picture, and then you know wind stuff. Like 
know, I use a lot of the same, you know, techniques for wind calls at the ELR distances that I've kind of developed for the close in game too, you know, really kind of focusing on like what I like to refer to as like the subcognitive portion mm-hmm. uh, versus like a, you know, a lot of people use, you know, I grew up kind of more analytical approach. Um, and then as I kind of got more experience, it kind of moved into developing like the subcognitive, like wind reading methodology. Um, but I mean, dude, at the end of the day, like it's shooting, it's, it's marksmanship. Yep. Like that's all this is with, you know, a bunch of fancy stuff, um, which is awesome. Cause like I said, you know, we keep bumping that line back, you know, watching, you know, Paul Phillips and those dudes like, uh, like just, yeah, just keep pushing the know, envelope, keep pushing, keep pushing, but, keep, know, pushing keep pushing. Every time I see Paul, you know, post something new on Instagram or, or whatever, like, I'm just like, damn dude, like, like how much further can you go? Like, right, right. Yeah. Cause so, he's at, uh, he's at 6,000 now. I mean, he's yeah, keeps dude. going and going. You know, Paul's yeah, a good awesome, dude man. with that. Hey, before we get going, cause we're on the hour. Um, I want you to get yeah. into the, uh, the, the, the sort of the vet support and some of the things you're doing for the guys who are coming home and getting their heads right and all that stuff. And, you know, and I guess we just had a Congresswoman who, who got PTSD watching the news. So, um, <laughs> it happens. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, so, uh, go, go on a little, on, on a little thing on that. Um, and, and tell everybody what you're working on for, for sort of the, uh, vet, uh, mental health. Yeah, man. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, basically, uh, I went down to the jungle uh, to take psychedelics with some shaman from an obscure like Amazonian tribe uh, to learn, you know, mysteries and comprehend things that I, I do not understand. Yep. Yep. Um, so I had uh, just this incredible experience um, working with. Uh, so Heroic Hearts Project um, is something I kind of stumbled my way upon. So. As you know, I've kind of wound down in my career and stuff. Uh, you know, I found myself starting to deal with, you know, some of the stuff, you know, the big ones, uh, you know, traumatic brain injury and stuff. You know, it's probably all those boxes of Rafa's rounds. That <laughs> you know, door charges, IEDs, you know, all this stuff. You know, you don't, you don't do this stuff operationally for, you know, 15, 20 years and, and not walk away like a little bit affected in some way or shape or form. Uh, and so as I kind of transitioned out, you know, I'm active duty and stuff and I kind of started working, uh, kind of my way in, like a lot of stuff started kind of coming back up for me, uh, kind of early this year, things were just kind of unraveling and, uh, I had a chance, uh, again, like I, I was kind of talking with, uh, with Kalen, uh, there a while back and he's like, Hey man, like, you know, we were talking one night and he's like, I want to tell you about like kind of my experience uh, in this thing, it sounds, it's going to sound really fucking crazy, uh, but I want you to just hear me out and kind of proceeded to tell me about his experience, uh, working with like ayahuasca, uh, down in the jungles of Peru. And I was like, dude, that is some fucking radical shit. Cause you know, a lot of people don't know me, but like, I've, I'm, I'm pretty straight edge, man. Like I've never fucking done anything in my life. And, uh, so I was like, well, that's, that's really far out there. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of getting to this point where, uh, I was, I was just not happy and I knew that something needed to change uh, in my life. It's just being really kind of negatively affected by this. And, uh, so I, I'd been doing some research and through a couple other different connections, I ended up linking up with, uh, Jesse Gould from Rogue Cards Project. So Jesse is a former Ranger Bat dude. Oh, yeah, uh, I know that name. 
yeah, he's uh, he's pretty well known now. Uh, I'm hoping to get him more well known because uh, the experience for me was just absolutely incredible. Um, and so he runs uh, that nonprofit. So they basically take in you know donations and they actually go out and they'll vet uh, different shamans and stuff uh, throughout like the Amazon basin. And uh, they help link uh, veterans who might be struggling with, you know, the TBIs or post-traumatic stress and stuff. And they help link those dudes up uh, to kind of, you know, use this as a modality for healing. Uh, and for me, like, that's kind of like, it was kind of this a little bit of a Hail Mary, you know, like I'd gone to the VA kind of initially when I got out, I was dealing with, you know, some anxiety and depression uh, that started kind of creeping into, you know, suicidal idealization and stuff i was like dude man like something's not fucking right and i went over to the va and like dude like within 15 probably 15 20 minutes like they were already like telling me like all right yeah we're gonna get you on this medication and that medication right they're pill shopping you now and i was like dude like you don't even know me like we haven't even we haven't even talked for 20 minutes yet and you're like already putting me on like stuff and i'm like nah dude like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm going to struggle this one out. Like I got to do this. And, uh, but obviously like you can't, you can't fix yourself. Um, sometimes like this is something that you can't dig yourself out of. Like you, you got to have a little bit of help somewhere. Um, and so that's like where this kind of non, uh, traditional like modality kind of came in and you're working what we call like the plant medicines like ayahuasca. Uh, for people who don't know what ayahuasca is, it's, uh, basically it's traditional, Amazonian brew um, using uh, basically some shrubs and different vines that kind of grow and native in the Amazon. Uh, and it, it's incorporated into these healing ceremonies. So I had a chance uh, earlier this year, well, last year, actually, yeah, it was last year. I don't know what year it is. Um, to kind of go down, just to call me up. It's like, hey, man, we got a slot, you know, and come, come down to Costa Rica link up with these dudes and so i had this amazing opportunity i went down with uh eight other veterans so we had uh four americans so myself uh marine uh dude from the 82nd we had some can soft dudes that were there two dudes from uh the uk sas guys came out um and you know kind of you know went through the ceremony man and uh working with these uh shaman from the shibo uh people uh i mean these dudes are like, they're out there, man. Like they're, they're jungle, jungle people. Um, but it was, you know, at first I was like, man, this is some fucking hippy dippy bullshit. Like, I don't know what this is, but at the same time, you know, I was like, no, I need, I need to find a way to make something change here. Um, and it's really cool. I got to work, uh, university of Colorado, university of Georgia. We're kind of, uh, in this process, uh, working on some studies, um, University of Colorado is doing like a gut uh, biome research, you know, kind of studying before and after effects um, of what's going on with like your uh, microbiology, like inside your stomach. University of Georgia was doing a bunch of like psych stuff. Um, so it's really cool, man, because there's been a lot of a lot of interest in using psychedelics like as a modality for healing. Uh, especially within, you know, the veteran community. Yeah, they're, they're uh, doing it here. Uh, Colorado that you mentioned, we just legalized yep. the microdosing for mushrooms, and this is a big part of it. And, yeah. uh, the, you know, they haven't done anything formally, I don't think. I've seen it on the news, but I haven't seen anything coming down the line formally, but I know it's legalized here now. 
Um, yeah, there's uh, some pretty good programs right now. So MAPS, which is uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, they've been a really big proponent uh, out at Berkeley. They've been doing a bunch of work. Uh, mainly, they focus a lot like on the cell side and like the mushrooms. Uh, and I think they do a little bit with MDMA and yep. like, Mexico and stuff. Uh, mainly because like those are really easy to work with, like in uh, kind of like a scientific right, aspect. Right, I've seen stuff. the MDMA stuff. Um, uh, I haven't seen the mescaline uh, mentioned. Yeah. From the from the clinical research side, like that's kind of what they're focusing on. But the results from a lot, it's a really similar um, like structure. Like when you look molecularly at a, like a lot of this stuff. And so a lot of it kind of cross, there's a cross uh, use or kind of subjective view of those things. Right, right. What you're seeing is like just incredible results right now from like these early trials. I want to say uh, MAPS is currently in like stage three trials for psilocybin. So they're, they're making really good progress and they're seeing just incredible reactions, especially on the PTSD side of things or like opioid like addictions. Right. To get, uh, okay, right. Cause the, instead of the VA giving you the opioids, like a friggin' chiclets, yeah. you know, go into some of these other things would be so much better than getting the friggin', you know, the 55 gallon drum of drugs they'll give you if you're, you yeah, know, if you're not paying attention. Yeah. It's, it's been a battle though, man. It's like, cause you know, a lot of like the DMT, like all these, uh, you know, psychedelics are, you know, mostly, under schedule one under the u.s uh substance control act you know it's a, they're all schedule one drugs which means there was a ton of research going on in the 70s and 60s and then you know counterculture revolution kind of kicked in and things escaped the lab and then there was kind of like this crackdown but it's kind of messed up even when you look at like when you actually look at the numbers and the words of like you know a schedule one like definition you know it has to be like a high potential for abuse which None of these, they're all like a serotonin-based, uh, you know, non-selective, you know, binary to receptors. Like it's, it's not, it's not like doing like crack. Like you can't get right. addicted to. Um, and there's obviously, you know, there's a medical, you know, use for these things uh, that was known even even in you know the 60s and 50s and 40s, like when when this stuff was first kind of really coming to, you know, the scene of modern science, like. Uh, this stuff was, you know, legitimately being used for treatment. Uh, but in that backlash against, you know, the counterculture movement, it kind of shut a lot of things down. It's kind of been dormant for a long time. But, you know, MAPS has, has really brought that stuff forward. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, kind of new regulation that's loosened up a little bit. And so you're starting to see it a lot more. Still mostly illegal here in the United States. Um but like I said, it's it's super promising. My experience uh, was just it was unfreaking believable. Uh, nice. I went down there like everybody that I went there with, like nobody walked away. Like everybody, everybody that walked away was profoundly changed by that experience. And I mean, that's awesome. It was it was just an amazing experience to be a part of. And so. Uh, I always like to kind of put that out. It's kind of become like uh, another thread of passion for me. Uh, letting people know that this exists because uh, i mean i i frankly i wouldn't be here probably in the same sense that i am now uh if it wasn't for this and i know like i have friends you know that have participated and they would not be here physically uh if they hadn't experienced these things like that they, they would have got them that's so, huge man that's huge it's, yeah it's it's something that's you know it's not for everybody you, you kind of you know 
when I went through, you know, doing it, like I did, we did a lot of like psych evaluation and medical screening before, like, that's what I really love about heroic heart project. Like they, they make sure that's done right. You know, right setting, uh, you know, right people, right place, making sure that you're ready for it. Um, cause you know, it's, it is, it is a serious thing. It's not, it's not like a vacation. You're not, you're not being a uh, psychedelic tourist, man. It's right. Right. It's serious work, but it allows you to really, to access these parts of yourselves that sometimes we, we close off. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, cause you're you supposed know, to be a tough guy, dude. Yeah. And a lot of it is also just natural, like human tendency for survival. Right. You know, like it is your, it is the human way. You no, know, it's eons of evolution has designed you to be able to survive. But you know, when we come back, you know, from these experiences, sometimes, you know, like you need to be able to, you know, deconflict those things inside of you. And it's, it's freaking hard, even if you want to, man, like, <laughs> even if you want to, it is still really hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it was just an incredible experience. And I love, you know, sharing about it. We could probably talk for like three freaking hours about it. But uh, I just love kind of getting it out there, you know, letting people know that this exists, because it just, it absolutely changed my life. No, a good. I mean, it's it's another avenue for people to explore. It's one that that they might be interested in, and and it's, it's showing results. Where I'm I'm seeing about it a, a lot about it here because of Colorado. Um, they're they're playing with all this stuff, and we're seeing it. Um, and I I think I was just t- telling you earlier. I think even the VA here is okay in like marijuana for the VA stuff instead of the opioids, and and so they're they're doing the CBDs in the in the um in the and the THC variants and stuff. So it's, it, it's definitely good to see people going that because I mean, it's medieval how long we've been in combat and how many people have been through it. And yeah. so you have to address the after the fact, you know what I mean? Uh, otherwise it'll, it'll get 10 times worse than it did, you know, back in the day. And you know, the Vietnam kind of that, that we grew up with that stigmatism. All oh, those guys are crazy. You know, that kind of stuff. Which is because they just didn't want to deal with them, you know. They they just threw them away. World War yeah. Two, it wasn't nearly as bad, but you still had elements of it. Um, you know, that's where all the biker gangs came out of was the World War Two, or the guys who wanted to yeah. keep pushing and doing stuff. But yeah, it, it, I think it's I think it's definitely something to look at and to support the veteran side of things, to support the mental health side of things, and and to give people new and improved avenues to, to make sure that they, they're clear of mind, you know? Yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, like I said, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's an awesome time to be alive, man. 2020. Yeah. yeah. Head, like whether you're a sniper or whether, you know, you're looking to go take a spirit walk, man, like this is it's an awesome time to be alive, man. So uh, it really is. Hey, I appreciate, I don't want to keep you anymore. We're an hour and 15 in, which is great, man. It's a great conversation. And, and I really appreciate you reaching out and Kaylin telling you to get to hook together with me and all that. Like I said, I've been around. I, I've, now that you said King of Two Mile, I actually have a photograph of you. I could put it up. I, I, I remember it now. I'm going to go to my other computer and grab it. But, um, yeah, this this has been an awesome conversation, and I, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your night, Friday night, calling me and, and, and back here and doing all this for an hour and a half of your time. Yeah, man, no worries. Uh, are you going to be out at SHOT Show this year? Oh, yeah, I'll be at SHOT. Okay. Um, go, I'm coming in on Sunday. I'm going to wander around, and uh, I'm, luckily I don't, have to work, I don't have to work range day this year, but I am going to go to check out the SIG Cross. Um, yeah. I'm going to go look at that, and that's pretty much it. But uh, I'll be there Tuesday wandering around. So if you see me, say hi or grab a hold of us, and um, we'll, we'll be out doing stuff.
But uh, right. stay on the line. I'm going to do the exit music out, and then I'll just hang up with you after I end the uh, the podcast part. Right on, man. Cool, man. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for being part of the Everyday Sniper. Thanks to Rudy uh, for reaching out. This was a great conversation, and I'll talk to you guys soon.